The night the chauffeur was killed, uh, what was the chauffeur's name? Miguel. Miguel, yes. No, Miguel. 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 Well, this Italian. Well, he was a Spaniard. Well, this Spaniard, um, Engel, he was furious with Maria Gambrelli. He tore her dress off. He protested violently. And then. Ah! Oh, my foot! Oh, I'm very sorry, I beg your pardon. You did not notice him. Excuse me. He tore her dress off. And at that precise moment, the door opened. And somebody, somebody shot him. Now, Maria could not see who the killer was because she was unconscious. And the reason that she was unconscious was that she had received a bump upon the head. A what? A bump. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 88. So you're going to see some real shit. Back to the future reference. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Another. we're recording here from um, atop the Pivotal Film studios in our observatory tower, trying to recreate the ending of Stephen King's book Revival. Um, Trying to harness the power of this lightning storm that's happening. Why is that ant leg coming out of that woman's mouth, yeah. Tom? No! No! Let's talk about that really quickly. Though. <laughs> the end of that book is just awful. Oh, it's I understand what he's so doing, terrible. but it's like H.P. Lovecraft, for as much of a fucking racist, sexist piece of shit as he was, knew to like hold back on the terror, mostly because he was a bad writer, too. Um, but... The reason he held back on the terror is because when you talk about what the terror actually is, it's just so unscary. Well, yeah, when you dig into the when you dig into like what the vision is, it's like he oh he had a vision it was terrifying. Oh, okay, I believe you because I don't know what the vision is. But when yeah. it's just a bunch of people walking around with ants the size of buildings, whipping people, like uh, well, that's why the, um, I don't care so much about Robert, that. Robert Chamber, but King in Yellow. That's why King in Yellow is so great. But that like does a lot of leading into like insanity and everything. But like. It just rests in the fact that, you know, it is what it is and you can't control it, but you're right. like powerless to it and that's fucking scary. But there's no ant legs. Also, by the way, coming out of Lovecraft people's mouths ripped him off. So HP Lovecraft is his hit or miss for me. What beer is this? It Tom? is um from the Bronx Brewery in Bronx, New York. They make no nonsense ales. This is their No Resolutions IPA. It's an India Pale Ale. It is a six, 7.6% alcohol by volume beer, which is kind of scary. Um, it, it's only a 12 ounce stuff, so that's good. That's true, but we plan on drinking this whole six packs, which that is true. means bad, bad tidings for you know, but you know, it's the a future stormy, of this episode. It's a stormy night. It it's is. early October. It's the first time we're recording in October. Mm. I my had favorite this, month of the year. I had this idea that for all of October, we should only drink Oktoberfest. Oh my God, I was thinking the same thing. And then I drank an Oktoberfest and I said, well, I've, There's a no, East, no, no. East Rock Brewery. East Rock Brewery. East Rock Sponsorship. Brewery. There's a really good Oktoberfest. We'll drink that next week. Next week. Next week, we plan oh, on well, drinking it. Un- we just spoiled it. But you know what? We're keeping it in. Guys, you're getting excited because we're going to drink it. And you're going to yeah. see how Tom thinks of it. I like it. Spoiling it already. But we'll see if Tom likes it. All right. Let's drink this uh, No Resolutions IPA. Apparently indulgent. 
Also, another IPA. We are. We are all in on the yeah. IPAs. Dink it. It's not bad. Yeah, it's pretty typical from a larger brewery. Bronx is pretty. It's a pretty big brewery. Um, doesn't do a lot. It's not offensive at all. It's not and offensive, but there's a hollowness to it. Yeah, no, it's it's really just it's not full. there. I mean, it does it says it has like big citrus flavor, but it doesn't. Um, lemon, maybe a little lemon grassy. Um, it's got it big f- regular IPA flavor. Yeah, it tastes like what you'd expect coming out of Sam Adams. But which or, is weird because I haven't. I feel like we've not talked even about Dogfish Head because Dogfish Head is really good. Uh, I feel like we talked about this before though, where. A couple of years ago, when everyone kind of when this beer thing kind of went bananas, and people were just dumping hops into stuff and then just calling it an IPA, um, they weren't doing anything to it. They weren't getting any nuance or, or you know, they weren't crafting a beer that was just a like big hoppy soup. Um, I feel like this harkens back to that yes. a little bit in the sense that it's just it's just flat hops. This feels like it belongs in two thousand like twelve. Mm. Like in two thousand twelve, I've been like, this is a good beer. As you say, you know you say that a lot. Do good I? Beer. This is a good beer. That's it. Just, <laughs> just like that. That's your thing. That is my thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to get get drunk quickly without I any think re- this will without help. any kind of weird taste regrets. Yeah, like it won't. I don't think this will offend anyone. I mean, I guess there's no nonsense. It just does what it says it's going to do. Mm. I know how I feel about that. I mean, you know what? They're not fucking lying. Give them that. No. Yeah. All right, we're not expecting a, spo- a sponsorship for Bronx Brewery. Too big for, too big for our britches. Mm. We're really, we're really hipsters over here. At Pivotal <laughs> film. So the first film I think we should talk about in the multitude of films we have to talk about because we're deep and heavy now into the awards season. Yeah, um, is a movie that probably won't be getting nominated for any awards, pretty deservedly, and that is Paul Greengrass's Netflix feature and his. Now quadrilogy of um, takes dramatic takes on real life tragedies mm-hmm. in 22 July. We have breaking news: a large explosion has gone off in the center of the city. We will suspend activities until we get some more information. Okay. I'm from Oslo PD. You heard about the bomb in the city? Yes. I've been sent to secure the island. Actually, can I see your ID? Yeah, sure. Uh, This tells the tale of the 2011 Norway attacks, where a right-wing extremist who's... You know what? Fuck it, I'm not even going to say his name, because I hate when people give credit to these people's names, so I'm not going to say his name. And it's hard to pronounce. But a right-wing extremist um, attacked uh, Office of the Prime Minister... Uh, office building the prime minister and then went to a youth camp on Utoya Island and killed a bunch of children. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie deals with that in the first good 20 to 30 minutes. I don't think so well. Um, and then the rest of the movie kind of tells this dual narrative of this terrorist's defense and the lawyer's kind of handling of being very philosophically and morally opposed to this man, but having an obligation to defend him, mm-hmm. as well as one of the victims. V- Vilar? Vilar. Um, v- Vizar? Is it v- Vilar? I think it's Vilar. Vilar. That's what they kept saying, yeah. but yeah, it's got a J in it for sure. That's probably Vilar. Yeah. Uh, man, I have so many movies we have to pronounce. Yeah. Um, 
his rehabilitation after being shot in the head and arms and leg um, to testify at this man's trial because he's trying to say that he's you know competent mm-hmm. and is trying to you know have a final victory against the liberal government yeah. by pontificating his his opinion. Mm-hmm. Thoughts on this? Um, I'm not a big Paul Greengrass guy. I didn't like any of the Bourne movies. No, I, I like. I think United ninety three is the only one of his movies I really love. And I don't even. I don't even really know if I love it, but yeah. I really like it. But I don't even think that's a. Pro- I, I think so many of his movies are. I think this um, Captain Phillips, United ninety three, and I haven't seen this Bloody Sunday movie. Bloody yet. Sunday is the only. Is that Bloody? Su- is yeah, that called Bloody Sunday? Is the one I kind of liked. Um, I just I think there's there's so much. I read a review that says kind of like he passes the line into bad taste with this, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Um, but it does feel sanitary now, and that he's doing this so often. Yeah, and that's I think my biggest, my two biggest problems with this movie. It's a it's it's fine. It does um, it does justice to the victims. Um, yeah, and, and Nor- Norway, we should say, released just this year a movie of their own, uh-huh. um, Utoya, 22 July, or U July 22, as mm-hmm. it's going to be called in America. I don't know if it's actually been released in America yet. I think it's not being re- It's being released in England on the 26th of okay. October. Um, so I don't know if it has an American release, but that's getting really good reviews as well. So Yeah, this seems just very, like, cut and dry. Um, it's one of the, like, I don't generally like movies where there's a dual narrative where you see the villain doing his villainous things and you see a bunch of other people living perfectly happy, normal lives. And you obviously understand from like the opening minutes of the movie that the villain's going to ruin these perfectly normal, happy lives. Um, I just don't see what the point of a movie is. If we were already establishing like so easily, um, the moral distinction between, between these people. And I'm not saying that like, there's any way to justify the actions of, um, the killer, but I feel like f- from a movie perspective, a better movie, if you really want to dig in to, to him as a person, then, then do it. Don't try to kind of even out the edges by having, you know, more time spent with like the heroes of the thing. If, if you're really interested in kind of exploring how this happened, I mean, I, I made a note about um, Dave Cullen's book about Columbine where um, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris <clears throat> are not looked at in a in a vacuum. And by that, I mean that he's not looking at their past lives through the prism of what they did. So there is... He's suggesting there is an obvious... And he's showing through evidence and in, 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 through the course of the book that... Um, that there's a break, and not every moment of their childhood is evidence of what they would do when they got to, you know, when they kind of started planning their things. They're yeah. not inherently, while they are inherently evil, they weren't born destined to shoot up a school. And I think one of the problems with this movie is that you just get the impression that that's from the opening scenes that that's the case. Yeah, well... This is just a kind of, like, evil incarnate dropped on Earth 
to shoot a bunch of kids. See, when I first saw this, when I, when I was first watching it, at first I thought it was going to be Paul Greengrass's kind of attempt to say, to kind of like speak about the Norwegian justice system and the fact that, you know, like infamously this guy <coughs> got convicted, but the longest term he can serve is about 21, 22 years. Um, well, and the the lawyer has to has to has serve to him, represent him. Yeah, and, and I thought it was going to be more about the injustice of like Norwegian system, but you, know, you read more into it, and the fact that you know the guy's never going to be released. They can say he's never going to be rehabilitated, so he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. Mm. He might be released when he's a senile old man. Um, but like it, that never coalesces, and so because there's so many marks. Early on in this film, to make him an evil incarnate, and this guy, you know, this guy's a fucking piece of shit. Yeah, he is, um, and that's, but like, just, not, just like, there's so many. Just, just not to cut you off, but like the, no, that no, one no. moment that really gets to me, and I thought he was like trying to make a point of like to make the audience angry and to make you want like his blood, mm-hmm. was where he talks about like needing medical attention because he felt like he right. got a cut on the fragment of his skull. It's right. like, but then it, that it's never like explored further. It's more just like this guy's a garbage. Human being who's not as smart as he thinks he is, ultimately well, fails. I mean, my problem, my other big problem is that the only thing that's complicated in this movie is, um, or that Green Ga- Greengrass is suggesting that the only thing that's complicated in this movie is like the politics, um, in the sense that the prime minister is saying like there was a, a systematic failure um, down the chain regarding like finding this this person, and that we should. Do a better job of kind of rooting these people out. We need that's a never better explored. In- like in no, no, it's just such like a, a not even a third plot. It's just such a after right, complete after. You do get a couple of shots of like people on TV on the news being like, "Oh, the prime minister's ordered this, and we're going to get started doing you know X, Y, and Z." It's it's attempting, I think, a little bit to do what you thought it was going to do, which is like to hold a little like hold a mirror up to the Norwegian justice system. But why is a British guy? famous for making action movies, making a movie where you see a whole lot of kids get shot just to hold up a mirror to the Norwegian justice system. What would be the point of that? Because there is no point. I don't think that's what he's well, so, and doing. I, in I assumed that his point was something very current and that, you know, and I, that we have to fight against these ex- extremists. You know what I mean? We have to fight our tendency towards fascism and towards, um, you know, a a racial unity or whatever. And, you know, you're showing the, um, the healing of Vilar and his eventual testimony as holding him up as an example of like, this is what we all need to do. We all need to be brave. We all need to fight. We all need to not give in. But I don't actually think that that's the case. No, because you can also, make that movie without doing all the other stuff. And also the fact that like he humanizes in, a, in to an extent the other extremist who goes to testify for him, who uh-huh. ultimately says like I would not consider this man a leader, and like he says you know beforehand you know, we would never coordinate an attack on on children like that. And it's like if if that's the point you're trying to make, then why are you humanizing this element? You know. Well, I don't. I mean, if, I just, this movie feels so. Plot. It felt ultimately to me like a, like a, a mid nineteen nineties teledrama in the sense of a TV movie that you would see made six eight months after the event to just kind of capitalize on the public's memory of it. Well, my my take is figure out the movie that you want to make and make that movie. If you want to make a movie about this guy, then make a movie about that guy. If you want to make a movie about you know um, hope 
and Vilar getting better and, and bravery and fighting against extremists, then make that. But you don't have to spend half the movie with the extremist to understand what extremism is yeah. or to understand what he would be fighting against. You don't have to do it. And so, so him choosing to kind of you know have his cake and eat it too almost to get to show the horribleness but also show the good stuff – I don't know. It seems a little disingenuous. No, it does. And, and, and my another really big problem I have with this is like, you know, he he cast Norwegian actors, um, and I think they all do a fantastic job in this. Like like Anders Lie does a great job, you know, as the villain. I'm not gonna say the name. Um, you know, the uh, J- John Odengard has has Gear Lipstein. Um, Jonas Gravel has has Vilar. Like all these people are are putting in the work, mm. you know, but they're not given anything to do they, they, their scenes have gravity their stories have moments of gravity but in the overall narrative they're just kind of like loose hanging threads and this movie's just kind of constantly doing so much and it's you know it's, it's a two and a half hour long movie but it feels in the end like nothing meant anything no i almost kind of felt like i was watching a really short netflix show where there was kind of, you know, they were going to cut off at a certain point and like, oh, here's the next episode. And then, they're, you know, it, that episode ends and then you're in the next episode. Yeah, and I think there's a couple, not reviews, but a couple of the, the comments I saw just from viewers of this movie said it, it felt like it needed to be a short series. And it does. It feels like it needs to be something that I don't necessarily know if there's, I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of narratives to be told from this event. Um, but I felt like Greengrass is trying to like, juggle so many balls that he just ends up not doing anything with any of them. But he's not really juggling. He's just decided to juggle two balls. You know, not well, to make light of it. He's just three. Yeah, he's, I guess. I mean, there's, there's the, 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 yeah, the, the villain and the lawyer. And, uh, the lawyer. Um, and, and then like just that random fourth tale of the Norwegian system and like yeah. who is at fault. I don't know. It, uh, there's, yeah. there's not... I was not impressed. I was not... I was not even interested. I was sad. I was sad that this happened. And I was sad that someone that's outside of the Norwegian culture decided to make a movie about this. Like, I almost want to let them have it. And. Well, that's the thing. Like, I I really looked to see if I could find a copy of Utoya 22 July because that's getting really solid reviews as well. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a Norwegian movie. Yeah. And I just want I wanted to be able to compare it. I couldn't find a version, but I think when we get access to that, maybe it'd be good to come back to this to kind of yeah. talk about that because I it does feel so it does I think feel like a, a third party making a movie about something he wasn't so necessarily attached to. Yeah, and I don't I don't I have a problem with people making movies about this stuff just because they find them interesting. You know what I mean? It's like yeah, I guess it's interesting, but like seventy seven people died. You know, you know what I mean, and like hundreds got injured. Like, do we have to steer only into the interesting? You know, is there a bet if we're gonna make this movie? Is there a better way to do this? Like, and do I, we have to just make a Norwegian version of Stupid Patriots Day? I'm you so. Know what I mean, like, do we have to keep doing this over I'm and over so, and over again? Like, this movie still, but the events of this are still so ingrained in the public mind. 2011, you know, at the time it's recording, seven years ago. I think we talked about this before, that certain films, you know, they, they present death in a way that's lacks any sort of weight. 
Mm. You know, like in a horror movie, a slasher movie, right now, you know, like like people are kind of father. Um, action movies are the same way. And I think Greengrass did a better job with like 993 of showing the, the, the weight to those the deaths or to the events happening in that and, and a lot of nothing coming into my mind right now, but I think this movie owes that owes, owes the fact that weight, but the fact that so many of the people who are killed, who are real people that were murdered, there's no weight to it. It's just mm. like to, it, it's a tool to show you how evil this man was. And it's like, that is doing such a disservice to mm. what actually happened. Yeah, and maybe that's what's, that's another thing. Like, I, I can't, I keep, I don't like to mention the fact that the movie I haven't seen, but like, I guess the Norwegian film doesn't even show or barely shows the the, the shooter, and, and like it shows a person. It just focuses right. on a character. And I wouldn't think and it's you like would that's have the to. story yeah. that matters. I mean, his uh, story doesn't fucking matter. I don't like. I mean, I'm, I'm getting out of the review of the film now, but I don't fucking care about what this guy has to say. I don't care. You know, and it's I I I care about the story of the lawyer because because it sucks that he was obligated to do it. But like I don't need to hear the. Fa- I, I understand that Greengrass is trying to say like ultimately he was defeated. Ultimately his great manifesto meant nothing. But I think any person with a right sense of mind realizes that anything he was doing was fucking Anyone, craziness. But I, like I don't need to hear him. No, like, it was, I just no no. Let's focus on the victims. You know. Focus on the people who who were auxiliary to and who got affected by it, but don't waste forty minutes. It's sad because Anders Lie is great in this. Yeah, um, but don't focus on that because like I don't need to hear his shit. Well, we all understand it. You know, I mean, everyone kind of understands it. So you're just making it. I'm suddenly getting mad about this. I didn't think I was going to get so mad about movie. It's just, about, but now I'm thinking about it, it's just it, like it kind of eats at me. He's taking the. And let's make this the last word on this. Um, he took the easy way out. Yeah, you know what I mean. Instead and this of, is a movie that should not have no, even... No, not at all. When you're this close to it, don't take the fucking And I felt that out. from the opening shots to the end, like, this was the easy way to make this movie. Yeah, don't see this. This is bad. Yeah. Um, but there is another Netflix movie that you should see. Which is fucking awesome. It's a good movie. And is not at all that sad. <laughs> but as a sad moment, it is Tamara Jenkins' Private Life. Wasting. Having a baby is an immoral act. Overpopulation, climate change, rise of neo-fascism. Did you take your Valium? Yes. Why? They're trying a by any means necessary approach. I thought they were done with all that and they were trying to adopt. They're still doing that. They're like fertility junkies. Your best chance for success is with the donor egg. He's out of his mind. There's a lot of positives. Oh, it's easy for you to say. You'll have your genetic contribution. And me, I'm just left out. It tells the tale of Rachel and Richard, played by Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti, as they are two middle-aged, descending slowly into, you know, not really their elderly years, but their upper middle age years. Yeah. They're trying their last They're attempt 47, to... 47, 41. Yeah. Which I... Funny story about that. I actually, me and... One of my friends were watching this movie, and we both went, there's no way Paul Giamatti's 47. He's or, like, even 50, close to 47. He's, like, 51. 51, yeah. And she's 45, I think. Well, she's... She, uh, we're not going to talk about that. She's... Catherine Hahn's fine. She's, no, no, I'm saying... I, 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 can, I can buy her as 45 or, like, 38. It's cool that they... It's the same age difference. It's just they just pushed it early, yeah. earlier. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, um, But they have been unsuccessful at having children. Their marriage is a bit strained. Um... No, he has a low sperm count. She, her 
eggs aren't aren't really working as it were. I, mm. I hate to kind of sell the the scientific discussion of it short. Um, and their what would be their step niece, I guess you could say. Niece? It's his brother's second s- wife's daughter. daughter. Um, Sadie, who who adores you know Rachel and Richard, um, offers to be an egg donor because Rachel's eggs are not going to work. Um, to so that Rachel can carry a child to term and they can have a child. Um, once again, I think Tamara Jenkins just nails this. Just nails the the story that could hit everyone, everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, the you mentioned this. Um, you know, we mentioned a lot about the, the stories that hit everyday people and that, that kind of microcosm of, of a story told many times, but just yeah. making it so dramatic and making it a story that like could happen to me or you or to anybody, but making it have such weight and, and such gravity. And this, this does that everywhere. I think this is uh, maybe one of my, if not mm-hmm. my fa- my favorite screenplay huh. of the year. I think, I think this is definitely, I mean, Savage is I fucking... So really, is great. 2007 yeah. movie, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Laura Linney are taking care of their elderly father, who's uh, played by I can't remember the name I of the actor right now. It. He's still alive though, which yeah. is great. Um, that was that movie ruined me. Mm-hmm. I watched that as a back to back with a movie that's going to show up later on my list. Um, both of those ruined me, and this this is another movie that you know isn't so despondently depressing, but it has such weight and it's such a common issue that faces people. Yeah. This is, this well, is just so great in every every way. And so I went into this movie instantly comparing it to the other Netflix movie that came out a couple weeks ago, Land of Steady Habits. Yeah, no, I, I did the same. I was like, oh, white middle-aged people having a problem, blah, 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 blah. Like, what do I, I need? I did the what same, I, but I, I, I trusted Tamara Jenkins' pedigree with well, the sons of Beverly Hills and Savages. You know what, but I trusted Nicole Hall of Center's pedigree, too, because a lot of those early Hall of Center movies, I think, are really good. They're not the Savages, but they're, they're, they're good. Um, but there's a couple of scenes where one in particular and maybe I'm just like over reading the scene but it's the moment where I thought that this it validated this story you know what I mean mm. where it becomes not just they're not a stand in for a group of people like I think Hall of Center was doing with um Ben Mendelsohn's character where he was just kind of a uh, he was just kind of like a symbol of you know, middle-aged white, you know, angst and apathy and all this other stuff and, and how he reacts to it is kind of, um, you know, a more fevered version of how every other white man wishes they could kind of, you know, get out of their marriage and quit their job and, you know, smoke drugs and do all the cool stuff. Smoke um, the drugs, kids. Smoke, smoke all the, the drugs. Smoke all the drugs. Um, that's, that's the sound of a, of a father of two right there. I'm obsessed. Smoke all the drugs. <laughs> um, I worried that, that we were going to have that. But then there's the scene after the doctor tells them that their, real, their best option to get pregnant or for, for them to have a baby is to do the egg donor. And... The sidewalk scene? The sidewalk scene. Okay. They're walking down the street, and Catherine Hahn, you know, doesn't want to do it because it's not going to have anything to do with her. She's going to carry it. She's yeah, there's, breastfeed, a, there's, a big, there's a big idea of her genetic There's no genetic material. Um, 
It's a typical New York sidewalk scene in the sense that there's a lot of other people around. You know what I mean? They're bumping into people. She's telling Paul Giamatti to go fuck somebody across the street. Um, that, poor, that poor woman. Yeah. She's like, she looks what? At there's, an inter- there's a lack of interaction in that scene with them and the rest of the universe. And they're having this very private conversation on a sidewalk and in front of all these different people. And there's always people walking around. They're having this very private conversation around all these people. Um, but they're having it out loud and they're having it out in the open. Which, for me, signified that it wasn't, there was nothing symbolic happening here. It was just a story of these two people. Yeah. And then that, that scene was kind of concretized, or the idea of that scene was kind of concretized for me. That word? Yeah, sure okay. is a word. Um, when she goes to, she's got the donor egg inside of her. And she goes, you know, to do her pregnancy test. And she's just kind of walking very apathetically. Catherine Hans, um, Rachel, um, is walking very apathetically. Like, you know, in and Which out man, of the Which, these two lead performances. Oh, they're so good. She's so fucking good, man. I hope... Reed, I think we talked before about how Catherine Hahn, like... Because we talked... Uh, Catherine, and stepbrothers. And stepbrothers. Yeah. About how she's so underutilized. And it's like, Tamara Jenkins is like, yeah, uh, yeah, no. no, I got her. I hope... I think this movie is getting a theatrical release so it could be eligible for um, it's Academy not, it's Awards. It's not getting anything. I, but she... But we'll, we can talk about it later, but I think she yeah, should. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a few minutes list. about why she um, should, but... So she's, but she's, she's so fucking good. Though. She's taken. So she's, I hope this opens up the doorways to people realizing she's a great dramatic yeah, yeah, yeah. actress. Um, she's walking out of the office and comedic actress. She's walking past. We love you, Catherine. The waiting room. <laughs> she's walking past the waiting room. She takes a lollipop. Okay, um, just like she did the other time. She walks past all the other couples that are always around. There's always a whole bunch of people sitting around waiting to do this, and it's the first time that the camera lingers on these couples. And they're all just Catherine Hahn's been out of the scene for a couple seconds, and it's just sitting like it adjusts. Like so, it follows her a little bit, and then it adjusts and focuses on these people. And it's just it linked those two scenes linked for me in the sense that you can imagine every single one of these other couples and or whatever having this conversation with somebody on the street. You know what I mean? It could be happening to any. It could be happening to any of these people. Yeah, that's this why is this, just the story that's, that Tamara that's Jenkins. One story, but yeah. that for me, and it was very important. It validated, it validated the story for me, and that's so. It's so smart, and it's that's that's good writing. You and know what I mean? It's great too because she underlines that with like, you know, you know, Sadie the the the. The, oh, dog, the girl's story of like side, like her story is kind of secondary, but it has such importance too. But underlines that that's another narrative and that there's another story there. And she doesn't, you know, Tamara Jenkins dives so deeply into Rachel and Richard's story. Um, that, that it feels like it has this, this weight to it. Um, but makes you realize it's an individual story. And the fact that she doesn't so much dwell into Sadie's story or into, you know, Cynthia and Charlie's story. And even though they don't have a lot to do in it, and also, you know, John Carroll Lynch and Molly Shannon being able to do dramatic work, uh-huh. you know, which is always great because those are two really good actors, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have a story to tell, and, and like that's pulled back from. Like, she, she, Tamara Jenkins is such a smart director and such a smart writer that she's able to pull back when necessary to show you, like, they have 
a full-bodied narrative, that these are dimensional characters who have something to say. It's just this isn't their story. You know, we're not mm. talking about their story. Mm. And I think a thing, you know, we talk about repeatedly, too, is, is really like those narratives where there's not a clearly delineated villain and hero, and everyone here is flawed in their own ways. Mm. Everyone, you know, even, even the people who are antagonists to to uh, Richard and Rachel, you know, like I think Cynthia is kind of like the major example. You can see Jenkins does such a great job in showing where she's coming from. And you never see her as like an idiot or wrong sided or just being a a block for no real reason. You can see her real true contentions. Yeah. And they're kind of justified. You know, Cynthia talks about like how, you know, like there's that, there's a really great laundry. I think it's a laundry room argument. Where she says, like, you know, you told me about how much of a career, Sadie says, how much of a career you had to give up uh, to have me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Cynthia's kind of, kind of has, like, the, like Molly Shan does this good job of, like, realizing that she kind of said that and realizing what, that the thing she kind of said in passing had, like, kind of weight to him. Well, it's just, it's, and, and this is, it's, oh, she man, needs, this movie. she needs Sadie to make the same choices she made to justify her choices. Yeah. And it's, but it's, it's fairly clear and obvious that that's what she wants but a, a lesser movie's gonna make her say that and and yeah and, and the nice thing that's about that too is, is it's kind of like her, her statements are kind of like almost reaffirmed when it's it's kind of revealed that sadie's not producing you know old yeah eggs as well mm-hmm. you know so kind of like Maybe it was it, it, it was very you know Cynthia's response was really emotional, but it was founded like mm-hmm. there's some foundation to her statements. Yeah, and that's what I like. It's like everyone has reasoning, everyone has complexity, everyone has layers, and and I think I don't know. I, I, I want you raise your finger. And there's a there's a big well, point I was just where I like add to that. Was like where every, yeah. everyone is also smart. Yeah, no, like she's they're not. There's no idiots in this movie. You know what I mean? Like everyone. Everyone has a sense of a general sense of who they are and what they're doing. Um, and I think the movie is about one of the things the movie is about, like the secondary thing is about like, how do you get there? And how do you kind of realize those things that you kind of understood, you know, subconsciously or, or you know, or obliquely about yourself? Like, how do you how do those things finally materialize into into a real self? And. And this cut, that's that's actually great. You get a silver star because I don't have gold stars to give out. Yes, because it, it leads really well into my next point. Self high five. Is I feel this is, and I, I hate to say this as a white man, but this feels like, to me, this felt more so than other movies I've watched this year. Maybe not. Maybe like support the girls more. Support the girls more so. This is has a really empowering sort of feminism to it, mm. in the sense that, you know, initially kind of. Rachel's kind of concerns are kind of like pushed this side mm-hmm. by Richard and like it focuses early on in Richard having the problem in Richard needing the surgery, mm-hmm. you know, to, you know, to remove the sperm. Um, and he's kind of like Paul Giamatti's always been kind of portrayed throughout the past like decade and a half. as kind of like not really bumbling, but, but kind of like nervous every man, but yeah. who ultimately kind of has something figured out more so than other people around him. Mm-hmm. But here he's, they portray him as really kind of flawed too, and and he's there, there's that there's two scenes I really love that that kind of like push this further and kind of like show you know you know the 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 autonomy that like kind of Rachel and Sadie and even 
somebody like um, Cynthia has is the fact that he has that scene where, you know, Sadie's told by that, um, I forgot the doctor's name, but the, the not Dordrick, um, but the other doctor. I think it's like oh, Wilson yeah. I forget Russell. Dr. Russell. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he goes in to like kind of like argue, to like be really masculine and argue about like degrading Sadie's character. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, he knocks over all the brochures. Mm. He's suddenly like emasculated and like bumbling. And then, um, you know, like that's a great scene. And then further on, you know, after Sadie's, the implantation of Sadie's egg fails and he's like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to support you here, but I can't, you know, he's just like this. And they, like, he suddenly has this like release and like, it's not so much a masculine thing, but it's like these selfish desires. Like, you know, like, is this about sex to you? And, but like, it's too very much. It's two characters who have so much dimensionality to them, but you don't see, I, I don't know. I mean, this is gonna. We're going to. No, it's in the next movie we talk about. Maybe this. Man, I'm thinking of this in my head just because of the next film we'll talk about. There's such a dimensionality to the women in this movie. Yeah. That like, like it's it's not so much they're doing it for the men. He says like they're doing it like the men are kind of portrayed like kind of like the men being trying to be centralized characters, trying to be like the the providers, trying to be the ones who are supporting or the ones that ultimately kind of need. Yeah. Well, I mean, to dig into the idea of masculinity, I think that, um, like, I wonder if the pickle thing, I, you could read something vaguely phallic into the, you know, the uh, I, 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 I didn't see that I one, didn't but... either, but like, yeah, I suppose you could. Um, but that last scene that you were talking about where he's kind of like, are we ever going to have sex again? You know, like the day after or the night that like the implantation they like, find it out the implantation needs to be it. it needs to be about her. And the part like um, that sidewalk scene where it needs to be about her and he makes it about him is just so interesting. Well, I wonder if there's and I should give I'll give credit to my wife on about this cuz she kind of asked about this too. Did like, she watch it with you? She did and she yeah. liked it. Um the idea that Paul Giamatti's character has to try to establish it feels compelled to establish his masculinity now and again. Um where it's it's an interesting juxtaposition because Catherine Hahn's mad that she's not going to have any genetic material in this baby, but I feel like Paul Giamatti feels very threatened by the idea that this is really all about her. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so where she thinks this is not about her at all, he thinks it's all about her. Um, and I think his instinct is to just assert his like male dominance and like when are we going to have sex and like I would have some of my genetic material. Um, but in reality, he's just kind of not sure about what's going to happen. Like, what's the next, like, where is this going to go? I mean, I feel like we've said that a lot about these movies, but a lot of the, 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 um, rising action of this is just kind of like, how, where do we go from here? Like, how far do we take this? Do we take it to asking our step niece for one of her eggs? Um, which is, which is, you know, a pay, it pays off in some jokes later where they'll say like, oh, my niece is waiting in the car. Yeah, or like, yeah. you know, my niece did this and people are just kind of like, what? You know, and they'll kind of pseudo explain, but then they'll be like, they don't really care. Um, because it's not about those people. It's not about their feelings. It's just about the, you know, it's just about them um, and the feelings they have and what they're going through. So they could give two shits if anyone understands what's happening. Um, I don't know. It's And I think, and I think actually just, you know, to wrap this up, I think that, uh, nice thing about this movie is too, like the continuity throughout. Like it kind of keeps bringing up the threads. Like Charlotte's 
you know, getting into schools kind of like resolved, but it's a very small thread or even like so much as the anesthesiologist saying, like repeatedly saying, I have the most boring, my uh-huh. daughter said the most boring job in the world. All I do every day is put people to sleep, right? Before he puts person to sleep. Um, I think that film does this nice friends and leads into that, that great final shot, you know, where, you know, this entire movie has been about, you know, they, they've kind of brought up how, you know, having a child's just to, to ease the marriage, that the marriage has its own problems that, you know, mm. there, there's the flaws and all that with it. And they're trying to find a cure for it. And like, they're sitting opposite sides. You're going to see, talk to a potential, um, mother for an adoption because now going back to adoption, um, they're saying opposite sides of each other, and he finally, you know, Paul Giamatti moves besides Richard moves besides Rachel, and they're sitting side by side, right. you know, and, and and now, like before, there was kind of like this weird power play, like he always needed to be the more important part, and then she needed to like have her voice said, and that kind of says to me, like, not only is their relationship now solid, because they've had this like parodying experience almost with Sadie, but now they're a true couple with even ground. They're, they're a couple that has solidarity that they're there to support one another, which is an interesting thing. Um, because I actually, um, the parenting thing of Sadie, I think is almost secondary to the, to the health of their relationship. Um, wherein all of that stuff happening, the main goal was never, the main goal is to have a baby, I guess. But until they have a baby, the baby's only ever hypothetical. Mm. And the thing that's real, that's, you know, I feel like I want to use an adjective here or an adverb, but, um, bigly, bigly, <laughs> that's bigly real, um, is the two of them and their relationship. Yeah. And I actually think they use the idea of the baby, um, as not as a way to heal their relationship, but as a way to avoid to avoid their relationship. So the reason that they kept having, they kept trying, they kind of do this like scorched earth thing where they're just going to try everything simultaneously, is because that time when they got when they got rejected by that mother who you know just you well, know that young using, girl emotionally who was just using emotionally them for, using them. Um, that was a sabotage. That was that was a break. You know what I mean? And they yeah. kind of never recovered from that fracture. And they have used this kind of like, well, just let's do everything as a way to kind of like patch that up. And it's not until they they kind of go all the way to the end with it, where they kind of be like, oh, we can't use that anymore to patch this up. It's just we just have to do this. It's just got to be us. Yeah, it's a hard movie. It's a hard movie really to review with any sort of justice in the sense that it's something that all the pieces of it work really. It's a long movie. It's like a two hour and five minute long movie, but all mm-hmm. the pieces of it work really well together. Yes. There's... It's a movie that needs to be, be watched. And I just, I just want to call out um, Kaylee Carter as Sadie. If Catherine Hahn doesn't get anything, um, you know, Kaylee Carter should factor into the conversations about best supporting actress. Cause she is, Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. She has several, one specific speech where um, they've asked her to, you know, be an egg donor and she kind of goes over why she's going to do it. Um, and it's really heartbreaking. I mean, she's she's going to cry. I mean, and for real. Not like... But she's not like acting. Not she's movie just... crying. It's, yeah, she's, she's, she's all the way in. And it's um, just really great to watch. And and just, it's just a that... pleasure. 
that that scene too near the end um where she gets into the not the convent but the uh, yado yeah the, the, the artist colony yeah the colony sorry where you know she talks to rachel and says like thank you for pulling some strings and she says i didn't do anything this is all your own and just like that non-verbal acting between katherine hahn and her katherine yeah. and kelly carter we're just like this they're trying to compose themselves both mm-hmm. it's just so fucking great yeah it's a really excellent movie yeah and um no, it's like so Netflix. If you're a big actor showcase movie, this is the well, one. Well, we're going to watch. talk about Paul Giamatti later, so I'm going to save all my Paul Giamatti comments too. But like, there's things in this movie that he does that kind of make me like newly appreciate like, yeah, and, like, Paul Giamatti as an actor. And just like reaffirms how great Tamara Jenkins is. The fact that she took, you know, the Paul Giamatti motif or cliche now, Alexander Payne kind of created. And maybe like, you know, it was kind of there with American Splendor and. Um, Oh, what the the movie that was on your one hundred and one to one hundred and five? I liked it too. Oh, story storytelling, telling. like kind of like that that Paul Giamatti caricature, and kind of like refined it into a person. Well, she anchors him, and this is a, so. This is another question that my wife asked me, and she was like, "How do you think they did with the art?" In the sense that, like, they're both they're both writers. Um, you know, he's a he's a, a theater director, playwright, and she's a writer essayist novelist yeah there's that there's that part where they get really angry about taking down the photo of the vagina for the adoption agency um which is such like a new york arts sort of argument and i think in a in a typical movie that's dealing with two writers you would have the writing be kind of central to the idea of the movie um the idea that paul giamatti doesn't do plays anymore he you know owns and operates a pickle you know, factory. Yeah. He's Mr. Mr. Pickle, the pickle guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Sadie is wearing a pickle guy shirt, and I hope one day to get a pickle guy shirt. Um, <laughs> and she, you know, she's reading, when Sadie moves in with them, um, she's, you know, reading an old article about, like, the theater he used to run. And it doesn't have, the goal is never to get back to that. You know what I mean? It's not this typical artist movie fight to get back to doing the art. Like, they've kind of conceded the art to Sadie. And yeah. they've conceded the art to another generation. And now they're just doing the thing that fulfills them more so than doing the stereotypical thing that, like, the New York, like, you know, elite requires them to be doing. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. Um, and I thought that was really, like, I don't know, it was like a breath of fresh air. I was like, I don't want to have to give a shit about this guy's book. It feels just, it feels human. It's it's very human feeling. Right. It's, it's, it feels like what people would do in that position. Right. You, you, you just, you might not love it, but you move on. You try to make the best of it and you do what you have to do. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't think there's much more. I I think we're going to talk so glowingly about this for a long time, but I think people owe it to themselves to watch this. I, you know, you look on, this is the last Netflix film we're talking about today. Um, you look on Netflix as of this recording, 22 July is the first thing that pops out to you. you private have to, Life is buried. You, you have have ser- search for. for Private Life, watch that. Yeah. Welcome back. My number 88 for today is the Ozzy Osbourne hit single, <laughs> Shot in the Dark. I'll play that right Released now. in 1980, I don't know, because it's not that. <laughs> it is the 1964 Shot in the Dark, the second film in the P. 
Pink Panther anthology mm. of films or series. I guess the anthology because... I think it's an anthology. Eventually Peter Sellers dies. And they're not attached. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're pretty loosely connected. Mm-hmm. You know, then they remake it with Steve Martin, which actually those sequels aren't bad. But uh, Shaun the Dark, based loosely on the 1961 Marcel Achard play Le Idiot, which actually starred William Shatner in the titular role. So that's fun. Come on, man. What? Why would anyone do that? Why would anybody have I guess the Shat back in 1961 was a different different guy. Yeah. Um, But it's it's Peter Sellers' second four-way into uh, the Inspector Clouseau role. This is like the time. This is released really shortly after the first Pink Panther. Mm -hmm. And so this is the time where they're allowing themselves to kind of like really settle into the Clouseau role because fucking Sellers sold it. Um, As he investigates the murder of Miguel Astos, the chauffeur of millionaire Benjamin Ballin. Uh Ballin's maid and Miguel's lover, Maria Gambrelli, is the primary suspect. And then from there, a bunch of other people get murdered. Um, <laughs> so many people get murdered. Half by, you know, the actual conspirators and half by <laughs> the uh, forlorn boss of <laughs> Inspector Clouseau. Um, much like Naked Gun. This movie is the more perfect example of a film running from gag to gag. Oh, yeah. And working with such expertise. Uh, you know, Naked Gun is 100% inspired by these films. I would say films. like a million percent yeah. inspired. <laughs> um, Bosley Corther, in his original New York Times review from 1964, stated, Edwards and Blatty... Uh, William Peter Batty, who would go on to craft the hit comedy The Exorcist, mm-hmm. fashioned an out-and-out farce that puts no tax at all on the mentality, but just plunges from gag to gag. And this movie is that. Mm. Um, I saw this as a kid, a uh, little time after Naked Gun, but I think this, this works more perfectly than Naked Gun in the fact that I think every joke lands, and the jokes that land hard really land hard. Now, did you see this because of The Naked Gun? Like, did you watch no, The I Naked saw- Gun and then you were like, oh, if you like The Naked Gun, you should, you gotta check out this this Peter Sellers Pink Panther No, I actually didn't see this. Uh, I was <laughs> cast in a adaptation of The Real Inspector Hound by Tom Stoppard mm. um, in middle school. Middle school or high school? Middle school was the hat. I remember. Um, and I <laughs> was told to watch Murder by Death uh, which starred Peter Sellers, one of Peter Sellers' later roles. Uh-huh. And I love that movie. Um, doesn't show up on my list because I've only watched it a couple times. It's not something I came back to repeatedly like mm-hmm. I do Shot in the Dark. So after I saw Murder by Death, I just had to run through all of Peter Sellers' filmography. So I'd already seen Doctor Strangelove, um, but then I had to watch like all the Pink Panther movies, Being There. Being There I, I really like, but it doesn't show up on my list. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't speak to me as much. But Shot in the Dark... You know, having been such a fan of Naked Gun and seeing an actor like Sellers and, you know, all the supporting cast around him just putting in this work. And Blake Edwards, just a tremendous director, you know, who directed Great Race, which I loved as a kid, uh-huh. um, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and just like the sight gags. Like, there's so many just ridiculous, goofy sight gags that a lot of times are kind of prolonged. Um, they do that, that, going too long where it stops being funny and then goes back to being funny again that we mm-hmm. talked about with Naked Gun. Um, it's just it's just nice seeing this like prototypical example. And it just works on so many levels as a great 
perfect introduction to like slapstick comedy from masters of the craft. Well, it's interesting to compare it to Naked Gun, you know, because it's it's simultaneously almost exactly like Naked Gun while being completely different from Naked Gun. Because Naked Gun leans on a lot of like um, wordplay. Wordplay, but also really gr- grossness and a lot mm. of crassness and stuff. They can really hang on that. Whereas, you know, a gag in this is going to be um, Clouseau sitting on a couch and falling off a couch. Yeah, no, exactly. You know I what I mean? And it, some, the most, but it works equally well. And the most crass it gets is like during that nudist colony sequence. But you don't even see anything. But it's, you know, it's, it's more about his like insecurity about being naked and like his like whoa there's a naked woman there like especially when he sees uh, maria naked and like falls over um <laughs> but leads to just what i think is the funniest scene in the movie for me during that when they're driving yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just that elongated scene when they get into that intersection and they get blocked off from each path and then she just starts screaming and, and he, he starts is, screaming yeah and it just is so well done yeah he really is a, it's funny to think about him yeah, and I almost feel like we should maybe do a like you know we have less to do, we have less new movies to watch. We should like Fuck do you like Oscar a, season a Peter Sellers block, um, because he's so invested in this nonsense role that it almost doesn't seem like nonsense. And if that's yeah, if I, what memory makes serves it so me right, funny. he got he got nominated for a BAFTA for the original oh, really? Pink Panther. So I mean, it makes it more funny that he's taking this so seriously. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, and almost to the point where you don't even think of it as an actor acting. You think of it as this guy who's just a really bad detective. Oh, yeah. And he, like, has this, you know, and it's more accented than in the first film. Uh, he has just this really laid-on, terrible French accent. But he leans into it. And Sellers plays, much like Leslie Nielsen would do, plays this, this straight man in such a ridiculous sort of way. But he plays it with such authenticity and such conviction that's just tremendously believable. Like he would, you know, do the same thing with Doctor Strangelove, which we win an Oscar for, um, you know, playing that ridiculous character with such conviction. Mm. I think, you know, another great scene is is near the climax where he's talking to the butler and he forgets where he is, <laughs> but he leans in heavily to like demanding the butler repeat what he was talking about. No, I've been. Uh, what was I saying? Uh, Listen, you, you daydreaming fool. What are you doing there? I mean, can't you pay attention when I'm talking? Don't you know what I was saying? You're not listening to me. With the greatest respect, monsieur, I heard every word that you said. Would you be kind enough to tell me what it was that I said? You were talking about the closet, monsieur. You, yes. You were saying that when the closet door was opened, Maria received a bump on the head, and from that that you inferred that someone had been hiding in yes, the closet, she monsieur. received a bump on... And listen, monsieur, next time I may test you without warning. So pay attention at all times. Yes, monsieur. And, and <laughs> just the nonsense of it, but how well he sells it and how much he's leaning into like truly believing in it. Like he's this megalomaniac, but he's like, well, that seems sells it so and well. That seems great because, you know, going in as a I mean, that's really that's my favorite uh, sequence of the movie when him and Hercule, who is my favorite character are trying to synchronize their watches. Mm. And they just can't get this watch synchronizing thing together. Someone's watch <laughs> has just stopped, or it's just too slow, or they said it wrong, or whatever. Um, so you know he's got a finite amount of time that he has to kill before Hercule's going to cut the power, and then presumably whoever did the killing 
was going to leave the room and they would know exactly who the, the killer was. Um, and so what looks like in the room, which is staged really beautifully as like a kind of a play. Yes. There's, you know, there's a couple of, of, you know, almost long shots where you get to see everyone in the room. And Peter Sellers is, you know, so is just walking around feet. and stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just constantly stepping on foots. You know he's trying to buy time. You know that's the premise. But you also get the feeling that he's not stalling. No. He really has no idea what he wants to say and is not falling over because he's trying to, to stall for time. He's just, he's just falling over. And he's not asking the butler, you know, like you just said, to kind of repeat what he just said to know where he left off because he's trying to stall for time. It's because he, he really doesn't really forgot what he was saying. Yeah. Um, and it's just... It's it's funny on so many levels that are much deeper than things are funny on in something like The Naked Gun. To the point... But it's interesting because you're not always laughing out loud like you are at The Naked Gun, but it's more consistently and rewardingly funny. Is that possible? No, I'd agree. And like, there's a lot of like callback jokes, like the constant attacks by Kato, which just constantly oh always my work. God. And they get it gets done to death, you know, later on in the series. But um, the Kato stuff is just fantastic. But you know, like a lot of those sight gags get played on and on. But like in this film, they always work. Like he's falling down so often, but it he falls down differently each time. Like the example in the um, near the climax where he falls off the couch, he's so stiff. And, like, before when he falls, it's just, like, kind of like a flop. But now he's, like, just stiffly rolls through it. And so it's something new each time, even though it's the same joke. Yeah. Or that one, you know, in the same scene when he opens a door to just kind of look in it to buy, you know. And that's, I think, to stall for time. But then he leans against the door and he falls through the door. Yeah, no, and, exactly. And the other thing that's great is that we, when we talked about the naked gun, we talked about the idea that everyone in the naked gun isn't in on the jokes. So when Leslie Nielsen does something weird or somebody else just, like says something odd, someone's always like cocking a look like, hmm, that was weird. In this movie, there's so many times where Clouseau's doing something incredibly stupid and everyone's just kind of like stone-faced, just like staring at him like, what, what is, what is, like, okay, what, now what? Yeah, they either, they either kind of accept it or um, they, they get annoyed by it. Yeah. And it's not so much like a surprise. It's more like a this is what he is and the acceptance or like a, a constant kind of building tension with it, you know. Well, this is the first time I've ever seen this movie. So it was interesting to kind of it to um, kind of kill a lot of the notions that I assumed I was going to see. Like, you know, that he has a partner. I assumed Hercule was going to be a better detective mm. than Clouseau, but he's not. No. He doesn't do anything. But he's great at not doing anything. Yeah. And he's very funny. Yeah, no, and that's that's the thing about this movie is... is uh, even the jokes that I think... I don't even think there's anything that doesn't land. Like, everything, everything does what it's meant to do. And even though you're not maybe laughing out loud sort of thing, lolling... It's very satisfying. Yeah, everything is is, you know... We talked about this earlier. It makes me smile as one of our episode titles, but it, that's what it does. It's just it's it's clever and it's sold well because you have you, have, you know uh, just the award winning director with a two time Oscar winning actor well, Pete, <laughs> leaning into this. Peter Sellers can't really be defined by his Oscars. I no, he like. can't. I mean, he this is, this role is a nothing role, ostensibly. 
that he makes into an iconic kind of archetypal figure for this type of movie. Yeah, and it took like just, I think, the first two, every movie after this, you know, there's some movies after this that are decent in the series, but eventually the series falls off the rails, um, even before his death in 1980. And, you know, then they eventually keep trying to keep it going, unfortunately, with like Niven. Um, but, you know, just from these first two rules, I think these two movies alone, The Pink Panther and, and Shaun the Dark, you, it still would have been an iconic character just with that. Mm. Just because of how much respect is almost paid to it. Like, in the fact that it isn't, it is a gag, but it's a gag told with that conviction. Right. And he's fully invested in not just the gag, but the character that supplies the gags. And Blake Edwards is right there with him, framing it as masterfully as he was able to do. Yeah. A king of comedy direction right there right because he knew when to pull back kind of like what we were talking about last week with with the problem with king lear is that the shot seemed odd and the blocking was weird and it didn't seem like the director and the actors were kind of on the same page with the stuff he was far away when he should have been close up and he was you know he was close up when he probably should have pulled back a little bit you don't really have any of that here it's kind it's of it's all a, synergy yeah it's all it all works he used that business buzzword we love business buzzwords yeah that's that's what we do here glomeration <laughs> that's not even a business buzzword is that it? we just know those two right yeah that's i it. think so um that's why we love them so much but yeah it's just it's really I don't it's know. satisfying i enjoyed it's, it it's like even jokes I've seen a thousand times before are still great. You know the the billard scene um, with yeah. him at the puke, the pool cubes, like just constantly dropping in. Like just it's a long scene. It's, it's much like a, a. It is exactly like you would, like I had seen before Naked Gun, but it feels different. I mean, it's equally as good, but they're funny in different ways almost. Well, and because it's set up. Oh, you know, I don't want to go too deep into thinking like goats set up like a play, but because it's set up like a play, all of these things are attached to each other. Mm-hmm. So Naked Gun has the pro- problem, I guess, of it being this kind of, you know, and while they did it better than other movies, it still had the problem of being like, this is episodic in nature. Like there's this gag and then it's, it has a beginning and it has an end. And then there's this gag and it has a beginning and it has an end. Um, but like a lot of the stuff, and I would assume it's because of the director and Peter Sellers' investment in the character, it's the whole movie is one prolonged, you know, like gag. It's not a sequence of gags as much as like the whole thing's a gag. And I think that continued running gags throughout helped to like, even though the the three act structure and it's very simplistic and sure, just kind of held together by the jokes. You know that conviction to the running jokes or the conviction to the 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 synergy, as we said, between each joke, even when it's different, like the, the falling pratfalls, um, help to create a cohesive narrative a little more than you'd see in Naked Gun. Naked Gun kind of does feel like a series of sketches with an overarching story that loosely pins it together. This feels more like a, a play, you know, told in those acts with jokes in between. Like, each thing still feels like a sketch almost, but it works has a narrative whole. mm so the reason, I mean, this is a pretty short discussion, but it's it's one of those movies I think that needs to be watched and experienced. I think the first four Pink Panther movies are all 
near equally as good and entertaining. Like it reads at all of them, or he just did his first two. Uh, I think he he kept he did it. I can't. I don't have it offhand, but he, he, I think he did direct the next few. Um, I think he stayed on for a long for a long period of time. Um, we can put that in show notes, or I'll, I'll you know I'll mention it on on Twitter. Um, unfortunately, not my <laughs> phone on me. It's charging. I looked it up quickly. Um, but I do think he was there for the long haul. Uh, but, you know, just meant the, the joke does run thin as, as the movies continued on. Um, well, it's like an Amelia Bedelia book. You know, the first couple of Amelia Bedelia books are pretty novel. Yep, read all of them. All 10, 20, I have read all of them. 27,000. And after a while, they just kind of run out of steam. But the Curious George, he keeps going. No. Man the old hat. Just always just there. Terrible. I don't know why they don't just lock up that monkey. Just put him back in the zoo because he causes so much havoc when he's out of the zoo it's a long discussion about the futility of life and the experiences we share well that's an interesting <laughs> regarding the nope not talking about Sean the Dark anymore now we're talking about Curious, Curious George <laughs> damn it so okay I'll twist this so there's the police chief in Curious George really doesn't like George mm-hmm so how does George keep his job on the police force to the point where the police chief is so aggravated with George that he tries to blow him up or shoot him <laughs> with a poison dart or just, a gun? I just like the fact that it's almost like the bureaucracy of it like, keeps it tied in. He just has Kiso to. gets the job done in the end. I guess and that's if he's true. not breaking any, he's not breaking any of the true. Well, that's what I mean. Well, I mean, it's just, it's like something you accept because the jokes are great. The fact a, that you it's, know, it's a really funny thing in the sense that um, every you know, spoiler alert, everybody dies at the end except for Clouseau, Commissioner Chief Dreyfus, and Maria uh, and Hercule and Cato and and Cato who attacks him in the pond uh, or in the fountain. Um, everybody dies, and but it's okay. Because they're all mur- <laughs> they're yeah, all they're all, they're all the villains. So like nobody has to worry about it. No. They're just all dead. Yeah, they they had it coming. Except for Miguel, I guess. No, Miguel, he had or it coming too. Yeah, I mean, yes, they did. But uh, no, I, I think this is kind of a quintessential, the quintessential slapstick comedy. I mean, you know, I always say somebody should watch a Buster Keaton. So those Buster Keaton movies early on, those those Charlie Chaplins. I think even um, the. The filmmaking Botling Brothers from their known for like comedies of the fifties and sixties said that Sellers was the greatest comic genius this country has produced since Charlie Chaplin, and I think he is kind of. I would say he's more of like a Keaton to me, a Buster Keaton in the sense of like he really sells the physical comedy and and, and sells. I mean, I think in the sense of the Chaplin, he kind of sells the mannerisms and, and the character. Um, but I think this is the ne- that next evolution of comedy. I think Sellers is the connection between. The traditional comedies of like, you know, the Marx Brothers that we talked about. Mm-hmm. This feels like ages ago in our I know episode does. zero, um, and the comedies you see today. But uh, I think I think there's 1.21 gigawatts of acting going on. No, yeah, oh, definitely. Um, but no, I, I think you know, comedy plays such a such an essential role in in, in a lot of films. I love. Um, comedy and bodies exploding i guess uh that's it that this movie is is really that glue that holds you know the, the history and the present together mm. and, and that's why it's, it's here on my list all right 
we will be back in a second with mine number 88. All right, we're back. My number 88 is Christopher Nolan's 2008 film, The Dark Knight, the sequel to Batman Begins. Um, I'm not familiar with this movie. It's a little movie. Um, Didn't get a lot of buzz when it came out. Um, Just kidding. (laughs) What a twist. (sighs) Spoiler alert. Such fucks. Um, Yeah, before I go into it, I'll just... Make a quick, quick structural note on my list. So, where we've moved for me to make my list, I I organized it by kind of how I responded to it. So the first group of movies that we just, or the group of movies we just talked about were really kind of movies that I like to think of like from the head, like from a cranium perspective. They're they're thinking movies. They exist like in my brain. Um, biting my tongue on one of the things you thought of with your brain, but okay. That's a different thing. But um, <laughs> now we're moving directly into movies of that I like to think of as the body, whereas the visceral experience of seeing this movie has kind of stuck with me. So a lot of Cronenberg coming up. I don't. Have, I have a Cronenberg. Yes, um, we're gonna go there. Um, so it's sometimes not the whole movie. Sometimes the movies are can be flawed, like this movie, I think. Um, but there's parts of this movie that I can't shake. Not just from my like from my psyche, from my seeing, but every time I go back to them, I get the same. I get the same visceral visceral reaction to those to those shots and to those sequences, um, or to those lines, or to those, you know, those close ups, or to the that that note of score. Um, yeah, the dark Knight has a couple of those sequences, um, for me. So for those who don't know what the dark Knight is about, uh, Christian Bale's Batman squares off against Heath Ledger's Joker. That's the movie. <laughs> really? Aaron Eckhart's, Harvey Dent slash Two Face is in it for a little bit. You get some Maggie Gyllenhaal replacing Katie Holmes as Rachel Dawes. Um, Gary Oldman's still doing a really good job. As Gary Oldman's great. Gordon. And this, you give him an Oscar for this if you want. I don't care. Um, you know, Morgan Freeman is pointlessly in it as Lucius Fox. Um, Michael Caine. From, from a narrative standpoint, Lucius Fox is important, um, but... He makes the stuff. That I character guess it's is to, well. The, the, we have to know where the stuff comes from. Well, there's the entire idea of like the police state sort mm. of thing going on. Um, there. And then you get Michael Caine doing subtly really good work as Alfred. Um, I, he's, I think he's kind of the underrated component of the movie. Oh, I think a lot of people love Michael Caine. Do they? Alfred. I'm not. Sure. I mean, I don't. I don't yeah, keep no. Up Michael with, Caine. Like, Michael Caine considered like stuff. the. Yeah, I mean. I, I could fill in for the, for those parts where you just like say something. I'll be like, no, <laughs> people people fucking adore Michael Caine in these movies. Okay, good because I think he's I think he's he's great. And where There's, Bruce Wayne's not going to carry where Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne is not allowed to carry a lot of emotional impact or have a lot of um, interiority. Um, Michael Caine is almost there acting as his conscience. Yeah, kind of saying he's the, the Jimmy Cricket of the series. Oh, that's that's apt. I wish he did wear a monocle. It would make it way more interesting. <laughs> It's British. 
<laughs> oh yeah, all those British people wear monocles. Does, did Peter Sellers wear a monocle at all? I don't Shadow know. The, dark? Uh, yeah. the next one. The next one they do. <laughs> um, Peter Sellers is, is dead. Long dead. I know. Bring him back. Digitize him. That'd be fine. Put him as he can be in the next Joker movie. He can be like the Tarkin. Like the, uh... After the Joaquin Phoenix Joker and after the Jared Leto Joker, they can do the Peter Sellers hologram Joker. Yeah, it's like how they brought back... Um, I don't know shit about Star Wars, and why am I forgetting that actor's name now for Tarkin? Oh, Peter Cushing? Yeah. They can yeah. bring back Peter Cushing. They can bring back Peter Sellers. And 1977 Princess Leia. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, there's a lot of stuff with this movie that, like, the when you think about it, seems odd. Um, there's the whole Lao subplot. There's the movie's constant adherence to the idea of like mob bosses and Eric Ro- Eric Roberts's constant presence in this movie where he just shows up again and again and again and again and again um, the idea that the Joker who is supposed to be this kind of harbinger of, of chaos is even has anything to do with any of these mob bosses um, is just ridiculous um well, I mean, but I think, but from it's ridiculous from a, a, a standpoint that Christopher Nolan seems to be setting up a, a much larger movie, but he keeps falling back on these fairly stereotypical tropes. Well, I think the idea, and the one thing I'll defend about this film, which I'm not the biggest fan of, I enjoy it. I don't think it's it's the groundbreaking thing. Um, is the fact that the Joker very much calls himself an agent of chaos, but it had very much has a detailed plan. That has a lot of moving parts that right. need to work in a perfectly orchestrated way to happen. Well, and he even says, like, I'm not a, I'm a doer, I'm not a thinker. It's like, well, that's bullshit, yeah. because this has all been well thought out, and like, ahead of time. Like, even when he gets Harvey Dent, he's holding the gun to his head with Harvey Dent, he has his finger on the, uh, the hammer. So mm-hmm. even if Harvey Dent pulled the trigger, nothing would happen. So, yeah. like, he needs every, he knows, he's, he's a chess player. Yeah. Um, to that end, I think a lot of the, because it's Nolan... And now we're looking back in time now. I mean, since he made The Dark Knight, he made Inception, and he made Dark Knight Rises, which has a bunch of masterful action set pieces in it, which rival the one in this one that I'm going to talk about. Um, And then the weird failure of Interstellar. The massive failure of Interstellar. Um, And then Dunkirk, which is competent. Dunkirk, which is... is, Jesus Christ. (laughs) That's a lightning storm folks yeah. um which is more than competent it's 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 technically perfect in a way oh, but narratively yeah. like substandard which they guess they kind of balance themselves out into a good movie no a great agree. movie um for me though this my love slash appreciation of this movie rests in two specific sequences and one is the caravan sequence when they're bringing Harvey Dent to jail um, and, you know, the Joker attacks him in, in first in that car that says laughter is the best medicine. And then he, you know, he's at an S so it says slaughter is the best medicine. Um, and then with the 18 wheelers, um, you know, just kind of running into people and, then, you know, Batman comes in his, whatever that car is called, um, you know, Batmobile that turns into a motorcycle. The um, Tumbler, I believe it was. Is it the Tumbler? I think it's the Tumbler. What's it called in the uh, Lego Batman movie? I forget. Um, but it's something like that. I never saw a Lego Batman movie. Oh, you're missing, you're missing out. It's a good one. 
Um, Zach Galifianakis is in it. I don't know if that's the truth. He is, and he talks about the boat scene at the end. Okay. Um, I'll give it a watch sometime. And he's trying to take an airplane full of explosives, and the guy was like, Batman will stop you. He always stops you. No, he doesn't. What about that time with the two boats? This is better than the two boats. Mm. So there's a caravan sequence, um, which is an action movie masterpiece. Um, yeah, all the practical effects in it are It's choreographed genius. perfectly. Um, you know, there's stuff in it that I actually haven't seen. Well, not, maybe that I haven't seen, but that reminded me a lot of another movie that's higher up on my list, um, which is um, Patriot Games, where, you know, the Joker is hanging out of the car doing the shooting. Um He's shooting at you know the the police armored vehicle that's that's holding Harvey Dent, um, and he's not res- it's not a stunt double, it is Heath Ledger, and he's responding to it in character, and it's really kind of a wild. He's making really great facial expressions, and he's like he's in, like fully invested in this character, um, and you know it just moves from you know. From moment to moment to moment, they're underground. They're, the way that's lit has this kind of orange. I mean, if you live in the New Haven area and you've driven through on the Merritt Turnpike under um, through the tunnel, it has this orange glow. If in any any tunnel really. is that under any it's tunnel? It's any any tunnel. There's a tunnel in Elko, Nevada, that same had the same orange glow. So you're gonna be a white fluorescent glow or an orange glow. It's there that orange glow. Go in a tunnel, people. But Don't be scared. Where in a lot of movies, I think they would fall back on the idea of making it, keeping it dark. Um, they keep it lit so you can see everything. It's not brightly lit, but it's lit enough so you can, you know, so you have a, a clear picture of what's actually happening here. You want to be able to see every moment that's going on. Well, yeah, that Lee Smith editing with the Wally Feister cinematography just works great for that sense of place, which we've always said is a big, important part of right. staging a sequence. Well, Wally Feister's really good at, at his cinematography, I don't think, is even though he won an Oscar for Inception, um, he's not doing anything... He's not rewriting, like, the cinematography playbook. Like, he's not Roger Deakins, and he's not um, Emmanuel Zbecki, where he's constructing these grand shots, like, using, like, all this space, and he's almost like making a painting on the screen. It's a... It's a funk... It's a completely functional cinematography... But one that one that elevates the scene into um, something vaguely transcendent, which is, well, I think, what he did here. And this is what I argue too. A lot of people will criticize sometimes cinematography winning Oscars or cinematography being recognized for its craftsmanship because it doesn't create a painting on screen. I think a lot of people get a misconception that cinematography just needs to be that. And I think if the cinematography is used in such a way where it more clearly tells the narrative or more clearly frames the narrative. Um, I think that's better than, than creating a painting on screen. I mean, the painting on screen, I think a lot of people can do. Um, Deacons, Uzbek can do it in such a way that it adds to the narrative. Yeah. Uh, but when you're able to do it while still, you know, framing a great shot, but also helping your story... That's also the sign of, of masterful cinematography. Well, and he works in conjunction with Nolan and like all the set designers and stuff like that, where you know Gotham, Gotham as a world is what it is. 
but it's shot so pristinely. It's so clean from like a, a, a photographic perspective um, that you can see everything. Like the depth of this world is enhanced by the cinematography. I want, I want to get off track here a little bit. I think on we're fairly off track. Anyway, so go ahead. Um, no, I think that's a good discussion. Guys, that's a good discussion. <laughs> uh, the world in Dark Knight bothers me a bit. Um, there's a movie that's higher on my list that predates this one because Batman Begins, what we talk about in a few weeks, uh, that creates a bit of a fantastical world. It creates the Gotham of old, the Gotham of the comic books, the mm-hmm. Gotham of the Tim Burton vision, not the Joel Schumacher vision. Fucking what Did Joel Schumacher have a vision? <laughs> no. His vision was like, I'm throwing my literal shit at a wall. Everyone lives in neon. Yeah. More neon than Blade Runner. But... You know, so it doesn't have it doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily gothic in 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 Batman uh, Begins like it is in Tim Burton's Vision, but you know, Gotham doesn't feel like Chicago necessarily in Batman Begins, and I really don't see a unique Vision in Dark Knight, and that's one of the problems I have with Dark Knight and then hmm. Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I don't know how you respond. Yeah, to I don't that. know if I I see a unique Vision from the standpoint that it is they're using the city. In a different way than Zodiac, um, but they're using the city to create an enclosure. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I don't necessarily. I should. I should correct myself. It's not necessarily Chicago. It's. It's. It's not. I think. I think actually one thing that is clever about Dark Knight is the fact that you know you have bits of Chicago, you have bits of New York, so it feels like an amalgamation of all these cities to create its own unique sort of like American metropolis. Yeah. Not the Superman metropolis. No. Uh, Definitely Looper. not the Superman Metropolis. Uh, Zack Snyder's a genius. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't... Like, I think I think my biggest problem with Dark Knight, and I'm not even a big comic book guy, uh, but, but, you know, being, like, a lot into the video games and whatnot, uh, that would kind of come later, this, it doesn't have a comic feel to it, almost. Right, and I, and but I think I, that's a failing. I think that's good. And I think it's good in the sense that, so instead of using the city... Instead of using the city as a character, which I think a lot of people in comic book movies, or just any movie, tend to want to do. If you make a city, a movie in New York, you want to use New York as a character. You know, if you make a movie in, like, something like that's really high up on my list, like High Fidelity, like, the idea of, like, um, Chicago, to go back to Chicago, Chicago is kind of a, a, is kind of a character in this movie. You know, you get your elevated trains, you get... Um, you know, the surrounding environs of Chicago, but, like, while downtown is always kind of in the in the offing. You know what I mean? Mm. You can, it's, it's just kind of right there. Um, this movie is not so much they're creating a specific, a specific place with its own... Like, because it does have its own themes, it does have its own values. But it's not necessarily but its the, own character. It's the people's values, and it's the, the collective... The collective characterization of like the people contained within the city, um, thus the city itself becomes almost like, um, you, like I mentioned before, like an enclosure, like a cage. But what's happened to Arkham? What's happened to the Narrows in Dark Knight? They're gone. Like 
it doesn't. But I'm kind of okay. Are with they that. the same? Are they even like the same series of films? Like, but that doesn't, Batman but Begins even a sequel for me? Or is Dark Knight even a sequel to Batman Begins? It doesn't for, feel so separate. I know, but for me, that doesn't matter in the sense that I think Batman. I don't really love Batman Begins. I was kind of out for Batman Begins. Um, I really like Batman. Begins. We'll talk about it later. Um, I think the interesting thing about this movie is that it kind of assumes that the whole city is Arkham Asylum. You know what I mean? Like it's not that, that is just, Joker's it's not just this place. It, yeah. It's the whole, it's like the whole thing. And thus, if this whole city is Arkham Asylum, then ostensibly the whole world is Arkham Asylum. You know what I mean? We're just all operating within an insane asylum at all times. We've just chosen to believe that we're not. We've made a choice, which is I think the 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 main point of this movie is that we've made a choice to believe that we're going to do good rather than evil when in reality the ability slash want to do evil is within our grasp we can go to it whenever we want to it's a turn of a key and then we're we're as evil as the joker we're as evil as anybody else so, we're so as evil as eric roberts so oh, which is, could be pretty bad <laughs> um so you're saying in in the attempt to narratively create a back a creative narrative back in gonna edit this out in an attempt to create a narrative backbone for the dark knight they kind of abandoned some of the set design and and, and some of the body of gotham that they created in batman begins i don't necessarily but you can also think of that, that from a whole and we can we're gonna have this conversation in a couple of weeks i think we'll you know continue it i think you can think that about you can think that way about the whole movie yeah, i don't mean to derail it so much it's just no, no, this no. Is my big problem with dark knight no let's talk about it for a while now and we'll talk about it for a while later um it, these are it's interesting that these movies are still like so well talked about when most of these comic book movies are generally written off within like a year of their. I mean, existence. let's be honest. I mean, I, I, I mean, we're speaking to the fucking choir here, but this is the best trilogy of superhero yeah. films. Well, this is ever maybe. I, I mean, the Spider-Man trilogy kind of gets off the rails with the third one, but I think this is all three films. Even though people hate Dark Knight Rises for some unknown reason, well, they don't hate it. They just write it off. I think Dark Knight Rises is also still pretty solid. I think all three of these movies. I think they're work yeah really well. Um, yeah, I think, well, I don't want to shit on comic book movies. I really don't because I've seen a lot of comic book movies. And I like comic book movies. But they're movies. doing like, what just, they're doing. Right, exactly. They're not aspiring to be anything more than they are. I think the interesting thing with the Dark Knight series is that Christopher Nolan, when he was handed over the keys to this franchise... Was like I'm gonna make a, I'm gonna make three real movies. Yeah, and I think I think um, Raimi I do think Raimi tried to do the same thing. I don't think Raimi was as skillful. He or tried to, but then he cast Tover Grace's Venom. Well, no, he I think he kind of just get, did not give a shit about the third one. But. And then he real and then he killed Venom by hitting pipes together in a circle. Hey, yeah, it works. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think all of that stuff. You in another movie. In a, in a comic book movie made by another director who's just pushing buttons. And I, I just heard someone talking about this recently on a podcast about the Marvel movies where the Marvel movies function as well as they function because they have a lot of like the, um, the legwork done already. Like a lot of the effects are already done. It's just kind of like a plug and play thing. You're you know putting character design, but the, the fundamentals of how this movie's going to look, how it's going to operate, um, are already done. Um, we're going to pluck out Edward Norton and 
pop in Benedict Cumberbatch and <laughs> redo the story. Um, but in this, so and this is something that I noticed too. When you give like a real filmmaker, and not to say that they're not the Russo brothers are not real filmmakers, or the guy that did Thor Ragnarok. When you give an auteur, uh, somebody that's an, an auteur, auteur that's that has a really specific vision. And we had this conversation about a similar scene. I think we've had this conversation about um, David Lowry's Pete's Dragon. Where he's got a truck chase, he's got a car chase through the Pacific Northwest, and he's got a folk ballad playing in the background. Um, it's a movie about a dragon and a kid that lives in the woods that's best friends with the dragon, and they're doing a truck chase that's going to end in a bridge fire, and the whole thing that's going on in the background, instead of a is like a Jimmy Dunn. Done. Yeah. Done. Done. Sure, either one. Is an iron and wine style, like, acoustic guitar song. Similarly, the end of this caravan sequence ends in one of the most thrilling action moments oh, that I've ever easily, seen. Easily. Where Batman takes, a, a, you know, a cord that's on his, on his motorcycle and wraps it around the wheels of this 18-wheeler and wraps it around a bunch of telephone poles and attaches it to a building. And the 18-wheeler keeps driving and then eventually flips over. And the whole thing is done without a soundtrack at all. It's just the sound of a helicopter falling and burning and then Batman wrapping this truck up and then the truck flipping over. And then even after that... When the Joker gets out of the truck um, and he's playing chicken with Batman, the only soundtrack is some kind of white noise, like really slowly building atonal, like string work, which is probably and, done. And on the sound design too, when he's firing the machine gun, like that thunder, like it, that sound design is impeccable. Just the thunderousness of the, the the shots from the machine gun have the real bass to them. Yeah, this movie's known for its bass, just yeah, from oh, yeah. the Zimmer score. But um, like they're 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 impactful with, and they're just shots into the air. Yeah, I saw it probably like you did in a full theater opening night. Um, yeah, I, I saw this. I saw this at the first showing I could see. Yeah, I having had my opinions of Batman begins as I did. The theater was silent during this moment. And I myself was... My theater applauded. Did you? We were just kind of like... I didn't applaud, but I was very annoyed. I'm okay with applauding at the end of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But don't don't clap during the middle of it. No, we were generally breathless. And I'm talking about myself specifically. I could not even really process what I had just seen. And it was just... I came just a bit. It was just just a truck flipping over. But But it was... It's It's a practical effect. Oh, my God. It was just... It's not a CG... It's not like Zack Snyder would do with Batman versus Superman and just fucking paint CGI everywhere. This is a truck flipping. Flipping over. It's Christopher Nolan going, we need a truck flip. How are we going to do that? Christopher Nolan CGI it? He's like, no, No, we're going to... We're going to flip a truck over. Flip a a truck. 
like a mini truck? No, you're no, going to flip a real truck back. over. Come how, on. how do we do, like, like, like sideways? No, no end no, over end. end. Come on, come on, guys. Um, this scene... The found guy Pearson punched him. <laughs> this scene for me links up to the next, the other scene in this movie that kind of, um, you know, bites it bites at me from a visceral perspective is after, you know, you get Heath Ledger, Joker, in the holding cell. You know, he's having his conversations with Gordon. He's having his conversations with Batman. He's having his conversations with that other guy after Batman's kicked his ass. Um, and he has, you know, choreographed his escape from, you know, the bowels of, of uh, you know, the police station. Um, he's driving in the car. And the police car, and he's got his head out the window, and the camera is stuck to the car, and the car is just kind of jerking back and forth. And Heath Ledger's, you know, he's he's shaking his hair out, and he's just, you know. And I am almost happy for the Joker. Is it possible? I mean, it's a, it's a moment of such, like, freedom and, like, terror, but also... It's like release, but also terror. Like you know, something terrible is going to happen now. Um, I think it and, works. And it's, I just think it's so arresting. It's like one of the most arresting action. You don't not get, an action. It's, it's not even action, but like you don't get a lot of that type moments. of moments in action movies, where it's just it's just quiet and the villains the villains escaping, and you're kind of you're kind of glad because you know the movie's going to go on. You well, know what I mean? I think it works. Uh, because of the fact that there's a satisfaction, mm. now, it, and a lot of times in, in action movies, it's always unfulfilled in action movies. Um, you know, the, the the Hans Gruber plot of blowing up the tower and escaping mm. in the ambulance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I know where you're, I know where you're going. But it's, it's so you know every action movie has the unfulfilled plot, the unfulfilled goal, and that moment of him shaking out his hair works. Because, and you know, I would say maybe even like the first significantly high budget major action movie where the villains plot came perfectly together. Yeah, and this is the moment you would see, like obviously his plan continues, his plans has further steps, but you know, like you know, Rachel's gonna die, or it's died by this point. Um, they're about you know, there. Yeah, they're on their way. He's. You know, dense about to turn, and it's just this culmination, and and everything's come together, plans come together, and it has succeeded. Yeah, and it has this, and it um, it's like this moment, this kind of calm before the storm, but it's a, like the opposite of like what you would expect, where like the you know the hero gets to take a breath or something like that, mm. like the villain, you know, gets to take a breath, and gets to kind of like sit in his in his you know the control that he has. He kind of gets to marinate it in a little bit. It's yeah, and kind I of think beautiful. I think it's interesting to compare this to a movie that had come out um, about nine months earlier, and, and something similar happens, and that is No Country for Old Men. Oh yeah, you know Anchan Chigar gets the money back. He gets to kill the protagonist. Uh, he kills the protagonist's wife, so he even fulfills a secondary goal. Um, then gets hit by a car, you know, as he's driving away after fulfilling the plot. So it's kind of like a slightly unfulfilled plot. It's still adding the chaos of the nature. When he's kind of just sitting there with the kids, gets the shirt off the kid. And it kind of fulfills the same 
sort of thing. It kind of gives that same sort of satisfaction in that even in more so that Chigar is kind of like this force of evil, force of nature. But I still like that kind of weird satisfaction in that I mean, what are we talking it's a about? villain's plot just coming together and being fulfilled. I mean, you can go to the other movie from 2007 where Daniel Plainview kills, oh yeah, you know, Paul Dano's character on the fucking bowling alley. And it's, and not, says he's and it's not that. And it's not that like this. This is Nolan just doing that over again because not this, at all. This movie was fucking done. Yeah. You know, by that point, you know, like well, maybe Dark, it wasn't. Who knows? No, well, Dark Knight was it, it was in its editing process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, like that's all I meant. Yeah, like Nolan needed. <laughs> A lot of time with that movie in post-production, I'm sure. I'm imagining Christopher Nolan in kind of like a Stanley Kubrick 2001 type thing where he's editing it like on a boat, like floating across the sea on the way to premiere this movie. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? I'm imagining... Why is he on a boat floating across the sea? Because that's how he could get an editing machine. Oh, okay. Like and work on it while he was traveling <laughs> from England to, you know, Just a, Los a, Angeles. a yacht with Nicole Kidman on it. <laughs> Maybe before Nicole Kidman was born, so... Um, but yeah, it's it's that same kind of like conditional relief because he's the villain. So you can't on the surface feel happy for him, but you're just kind of you But you've are. always seen the villain lose, and it's nice yeah. to see like a villain in the one moment beat the superhero. Well I would go to and I would point Maybe to we all have that side to us that wants that. Sure. I would point to another thing and you can you know Tell me if the Reddit community is, is all over this as well. I think one of the things that Christopher Nolan does, which is interesting, is he focuses a lot on, in the second half of the movie, he focuses, not a lot, but he focuses several shots on the Joker's forearms, which are right. which have no color on them. So it's just his face, and his obviously the color on his face is coming off, but his forearms never have, it, his forearms are just bare, and they're hairy, and he's got a glove on usually, but he's just, like, and he starts a lot of shots, like, with... With his with his forearms, I never, and that's another I never heard anything about that. That's another thing that happens in that scene where he's hanging out the car, and he's got his his he's got his hand on the thing, and so he's got his white face juxtaposed against his flesh, and it's a really I have always found that that kind of dichotomy really moving, um, in the sense that what the the flesh of his arm represents versus like the color of his face. How so? Um, the face is obviously a mask. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because he, re- you know, it comes off when Batman's like beating the shit out of him, and he doesn't have much. He has left it off during the the shooting sequence when they're with the mayor, or he's got makeup, see. or he's got like more makeup on it, or something. He's got something weird on his face. Um, but then later, when he's in that warehouse with all the money, it's re- it's all reapplied. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's all it, the the makeup's white again. Um, It's almost like, to draw it back to Stephen King's revival, it's almost like the ant leg is like reaching out of his mouth. You know what I mean? That's the real him sort of thing? Like, the hu- like there is, he maintains, he's as scary as he is because you know he's a person. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's not cloaked in this, in a kind of... Um, He's not he's not cloaked in like the traditional superhero like shit. He's wearing makeup and he's got scars on his face, but he's a he's a dude. And I think they tried to do the same thing with Bane in Dark Knight Rises, which they failed at. Um they brushed Bane off too quickly. Right. Um but it's and I think it makes it equally I think it what's what makes it that much more satisfying is that he's such a like he's a monster, 
but he's not a monster. He's a fairly normal-sized person with hairy arms. You know what I mean? Who has this, like, cosmic nihilism about him that he's using to kind of undo, like, civilization as, as, as it's presented here in, in, you know, Gotham City. As a kind of stand-in for that. I'd agree. And this is maybe my biggest problem with this movie is the fact that it is not a comic book movie necessarily. You know, Batman Begins is a comic book film. Mm, yeah, yeah. Like through and through it, it rests on the creation of the superhero, the superhero inside of a larger than normal world with a semi larger than normal villain who never is a human with a super weapon, you know, all those various kind of cliches of a superhero movie done really exceptionally well, in my opinion. Um, bad dark Knight feels like a very human tale. Like mm. there's still very superhero notes to it. You know, some of the, the, the obviously the gadgets and the way some of the plans work together and kind of like the machinations, especially of the instantaneous perfect sonar of the whole world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's still a very human tale uh, mm. that could be told in the same way of like I could see a Michael Mann, you know, mm. and like there's a lot of heat in this movie. Sure, in just oh yeah, terms yeah. Of inspiration. I wouldn't say like it's, it's a it's not point by point. No, but it's a but it's a, the the cleanness of the filmmaking is yeah. very is very you know, you know the Michael high Mann. sequence definitely tries to, it's inspired by that. And there's moments that are inspired by it, um, and in so being. Having followed, just followed, there will be blood and no country for old men. Somebody's honking at me because they're, they're, they're not liking the fact what I'm going to say. It. Like, don't do this, Mario. You're going <laughs> to get the, the bread at death squad against you. 4chan is getting the <laughs> battlements ready. And, but in so doing, in so being so human, it puts itself in that class and when it is in that class, it pales vastly in comparison to me. Mm. And that's what gets me about Dark Knight. I think it's a good movie, yeah. but it tries to be in the class of great cinema and not just great comic book cinema. It's just, it's supposed to be great cinema with comic book characters and ends up being just a good movie with comic book characters. And that's, I think, one of the reasons, I think I agree with you in the sense, too, that there's a lot of just comic book fat in this movie. You know what I mean? Like the whole skyhook thing. Eric Roberts was trying to lose weight. <laughs> yeah. um, there's all you know all the mob stuff that we already mentioned. There's like that weird skyhook scene, which is shot awesome, but ostensibly has no yeah, reason technically to be in the movie. Technically, this movie's fucking um, masterful. Even the stuff. It's funny because this is a movie of two halves. So the beginning half of this movie is really kind of silly. And a lot of people talk about like, oh, it's, you know, he's telling all these sto- these different stories about like how he got his scars. The stories about how he got his scars are stupid. And they're yeah. they're purposely stupid. Like they're meant to be for you to think that there's a reason for this, for ultimately you to find out that there's one hundred percent no reason for it. Um and it bums it always bums me out every time Michael Caine, like, you know, tells that story about like how he was, you know, in you know, some war or other and he was fighting someone in the Burmese jungle and, you know, you know, some people just want to see the world burn. It's like, well, yeah, obviously, you know. Yeah, obviously like he just wants to see the like, world burn 
Come on. The silliness of like the six or six murders or whatever, you know, um, six murders, I believe it is. Because mm. Joker says he let six people die. Um, yeah, it's either five like, or six, doesn't matter. But it's, it's very, that is very comic booky. Like when the, the judge's car explodes and like the Joker cards fly everywhere. Like that's, but that's, I like that part more because like it leans more into its machinations than a comic book movie. I like that part too, but I think it, 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 it detracts from where the movie ends up going which is a kind of real, um, I don't know. I kept going back to like Voltaire's idea that if like there was no God, we would have invented a God. Um, in the same way that I think Joker kind of occupies that space in this movie, where it almost seems like we are in the second half of the movie. They almost make the case that the he believes that the people of Gotham almost kind of like conjured him out of nothing, like. Like to speak for their sub, like their subconscious, their yeah, their is... un their unfulfilled will to to murder and kill and pillage and stuff like that. They've collectively conjured Joker out of out of those feelings. Apparently, we're conjuring Joker out of the environment around the Pivotal Film Studios. <laughs> the thunder is, is boiling a Heath Ledger creation. Um, yeah, which I think I also think is it's, I think narratively this movie is sound in the sense of the one time where Joker takes his finger off the dial sort of thing or takes his finger off the, the trigger hammer, mm-hmm. as it were, uh, to speak to what he's actually doing with Dent, um, is when he gives kind of control over to the people, that's when he fails. You know, like every time before that, he is in complete control of the situation. You know, he, he's doing the machinations of the system. He wins every time. But the second he doesn't do that, is when he loses, mm. and and I think narratively that that works. I think I think this movie works in every level. I think so too. It just it <laughs> some parts work better than other parts. Yeah, but I think it, I, and I think even so, like everything it's doing does work. It's just unfortunately it, it does it so proficiently that it enters itself into a new class of film, and in doing so, it shows its inability to transcend itself. Wow, that's kind of profound and amazing. I wonder what Christopher Nolan would think about that. Guys. I made a movie that I can't transcend with my own movie. <laughs> is, that, um, is that a gold star? Is that a gold star That comment? is a gold star, yeah. I'm going to bring a chart next week. Wait, I think I get something out of that. I have to look into my rewards cycle. Yeah, you get a high five. Oh, yeah. Um, the elephant in the room, Heath Ledger. Good, bad, indifferent. Oh, uh, great, great. He's great. Um, I wouldn't have given the Oscar. Uh, that's just me because because I love Michael Shannon in Revolutionary Road oh, and that's a, Jesus Christ Mario no no but am I upset that he won um, is is it one of those things where it's like no like I personally would have not voted for him but it's one of those things where even if he had survived and won I I, I don't think he won because he died I don't think um, he did either. I, mean, I think a, he would have won. I think he still would have won if if he was still alive. He created, uh, I mean, he created he was, a new archetype for yeah. like for villains in movies. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not the. It is, it is a deserving role. Um, like that, that interrogation sequence alone, just the way he's able to to sell it with with a human element while also still being this larger than life character. You know, and just. There, there's he he it, he settles into the role like we talked about with Peter Sellers. You know he he is he's a Heath Ledger. Oh, yeah. He's you know I think I think I think it's known by the fact that like the internet community was fucking pissed that this guy from Brokeback Mountain and Knight's Tale was going to play this iconic role, and then 
you know, everyone now has to compare Joker <clears throat> to him. Well, we're not going to talk about Brokeback Mountain ever again, so let's, I just want to mention it, like, right, we'll mention it real quick right here, because I think this is the last time we're going to talk about Heath Ledger, right? Maybe? I don't know. Um, I'm just looking at because I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, you kind of... You're talking about Jake Gyllenhaal a lot. He so. kind of telegraphed this role in Brokeback Mountain, I think, where he just kind of disappeared into the role of Ennis. And you kind of didn't... And you almost didn't have a language to describe what he was doing. You know what I mean? Like, it was so far beyond what people kind of thought maybe that role should have been or could have been or was. Yeah. Um, like, the depth of his sadness was so intense that I don't think people could really make sense of it. I mean, it's it's one of the great losses of an actor. I mean, people, I mean, people, I think now, I mean, they used to say River Phoenix. I'm not going to, I don't want to say that. Um, he is a profound, it's a profoundly deep loss in the fact that he was already at a level beyond most actors. Um, well, he would, but he and was, like, I don't like Brokeback Mountain at all. And for the fact that that movie rests on its establishing shots for way too fucking long. But and that got, is that is the, it really. The, the, one of the single best scores in the history of cinema. Are you fucking kidding me? Not like Gustavo San- Okay. Wait, you actually love that score? Yes. That score's garbage. It I hate 100% that score. 100% not garbage. I hate that score with why? living passion. It is simplistic and boring and oh, That's why it's so good. Did you ever just listen to it? Yeah. I could play it right. I could play most of it right now for you if you had a guitar. I don't have a guitar. I don't play music. I mean, maybe maybe I can't be the score guy. But it's a different conversation. Um, but no, he's he was transcendent in that. Like he is. And who wins in two thousand five for actor? I can't remember it off the top of my head. I don't know. But I I think you know ultimately, as much as I don't like Brokeback Mountain, that is quintessentially a great role. And Heath Ledger was uh, it's a it's a loss to have it have him die when he died because he was already. Such a fantastic actor. I think I think he should have won personally in 05 mm. for Broke Back Over, Philip Seymour Hoffman, even in Capote. Um, we did have to look that up, by the way. We <laughs> forgot. We, could, we really thought um, it was Forrest Whitaker. But you know, I, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman's a great actor. I don't like Capote at all. Um, so maybe I was the right person to talk about that. Dude, but, I, that no, I agree. but Ledger is just transcendent in that. And, like he, he lost himself in his roles in this period of time, and he lost himself famous like infamously now in, in it's the Joker hard, role it's hard to even watch A Night's Tale Dark Knight that's just, that's just the thing you, it's hard to watch A Night's it's Tale hard, it's hard to watch 10 Things I Hate About You I, I like 10 Things I Hate About I You I do too yeah that's a good one um, but it's hard to watch The Dark Knight now because you don't even really think of Heath Ledger you just think of the Joker yeah you know what I mean it's, it's not played by the Joker played by Heath Ledger it's just He's just the Joker. You know what I mean? That's just him. That's just who he is. Um, which is weird because he's a person. He isn't the Joker. Um, but he's, it's, it's, the role is so gripping and so perfectly realized that it's just kind of, it's, there's nothing you can do with it. Well, I it's think just it's, there. I think it's forever. interesting in October of 2018, you know, talking about the Joker and the fact that like a lot of bad actors have inhabited that role and one actor who just did not give a shit and like a paycheck and Jack Nicholson, you know, and, and so we're, we're in the precipice now a year away, I believe from an actual great actor Walking doing the Joker too. again, uh, with Todd Phillips. So who knows what's going to happen there? And Mark but, Maron <laughs> and Robert De Niro. What's Mark Maron playing in that? 
So Robert De Niro is like a talk show host, and apparently Mark Maron is like the talk show host. What the like fuck is this movie person. about? It's apparently supposed to be like the last um, King of Comedy, like Martin Scorsese's King of Comedy, where Robert De Niro is taking the the um, Jerry Lewis role, and Joaquin Phoenix plays Arthur Fleck, who is like a fledgling comedian, I think. So this, this isn't really a Joker movie? Like it's like a Joker origin story, but it kind of takes place in the 80s. This looks... I'm not, I'm not a fan of this. Is, you, you know, like that's going to be the, a time where, where a workman's actor who gets lost in his roles, you know, the second time we're going to see that, I think, since Ledger. And it's going to be interesting kind of compare the two. I still think Ledger is going to be the superior one. Yeah, I think so too. I, I don't think there is much to say about Ledger. I think you know, all the... There, there, there's no surprise... You know, we're, we're, we're a podcast of surprises in our opinions. Uh, but I think we both agree that Ledger is just phenomenal in this. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's fantastic. It's, you know, he's overwhelmingly good in yeah. this part. So. I mean, he, he, he overwhelms everyone else. And I think everyone else is doing good. Yeah, I almost feel bad for Christian Bale when they're together. When Christian Bale has to growl through that stupid Batman mask. And, you know, Heath Ledger's just kind of free to act well, the thing that the thing that's bothersome too is you could kind of you can almost tell through that mask and and the way like Bale's doing. You know, he can he can hang, well, and almost, he wants to, but he can't because like the role demands he doesn't. And you almost wonder if a lot of the choices that Christian Bale made post Batman are related to the idea that I just spent like the bulk of my years getting super famous behind a mask where I couldn't do anything but rah, 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 and people were just like oh, and, what and is that now he's going to become the penguin in <laughs> in that in that vice movie so fucking Dick Cheney's the penguin man the movie looks alright no it's going to be good it's Adam McKay um, Adam McKay became a, a person oh, he was a person <laughs> fucking McKay yeah, who expected that good for him well except for Big Short um, so that's where it, that's number 88 yeah so um, why don't you run down our social media you can, platforms? You can look at pictures of the beers we have at Instagram.com slash Pivotal Film. You can leave us little digital hearts so we can feed our little digital children, <laughs> which is great because digital children are fake children. I don't have any of them. The digital children are much easier to take care of than the real children. I would not know. Put that on the record. Uh, you can follow us in the mirror world of Twitter at <laughs> twitter.com slash film pivotal. And, uh, yeah, no one's written us yet, but feel free to write us at pivotal film podcast at gmail.com or I, I, go I, to pivotalfilm.com to see a list of the beers and links to Instagram and Twitter and to see a list of our yeah, movies. If, if you and, like, if you like taking a circuitous, circuitous route, circuitous, circuitous, Sir Mother Rush fuck Rush. me. <laughs> circuitous. Circuitous. Take the circuitous route. Route to our Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, just, you know, go through our website and then yeah. jump in there. Also, if you'd like to see me mispronounce more words, you can watch the last episode, uh, or a few episodes ago, where I tried to use a bunch of German words in Metropolis, or basically any episode where I try to pronounce any sort of name. We'll tr- we'll try Luckily, to- most of the time, these people are dead. So, like, what the fuck are they going to do? Their estate's going to sue me? They're gonna they're gonna take a, a Suspiria route where they're like, oh these these shots in this movie look like pictures. Have you heard about this, by the way? No. So some famous like Mexican feminist like the the estate of a like so um This is the new Suspiria. The new Suspiria, yeah. yeah he's has like thirteen shots, um Luca Yeah, whatever his name is. 
Call Me By Your Name director. Yeah. I know the name. I could spell it out I've got for it right you, here. Um, but, but I cannot pronounce it, and I'm not going to defame him. No, I'm going to try. Okay. Uh, Guadagnino. Guadagnino? But anyway, he's done a lot of, I, I don't know the artist off of my head, but he did a lot of inspirations in the cinematography. Yep. Um, and now the estate's suing assist and assist and like, take all these shots out. Is that why the movie's... Is it delayed? No, it's not delayed. Okay. I, it's probably... It's, it's a fair use, right? It has to be fair use. I don't know. The movie's not getting very good reviews, so... We'll it, I don't know. The reviews weren't interesting. The reviews were like, I don't know if this is like the best thing ever, the worst thing ever. I don't right. have to think about it. Which is, I think... Which is always something that I'm Which gonna is going to be but, yeah. good for this podcast. Um. So, yeah. So, keep going. To, you know, we're going to keep going to movies. We're going to keep watching We're going to see a lot movies. of movies. We're going to see a lot so of movies. Many movies. Netflix is like ruining our life. Yeah, movies. Netflix. Netflix is competing with, with itself now. There's like releasing two movies against each other, and it's like the same audiences. But you like, know what are you doing, Netflix? You know what's weird, and I sometimes feel guilty about this. And you know, feel free to write us and let me know if I should feel guilty about this. The idea that like I spend a lot of time watching like Netflix movies instead of going to the movies, but like I feel like you gotta you gotta attend. You know, you gotta watch these movies. Like, and but the same thing's happening. You know, Amazon's got you know. A couple of new movies. Well, at least like, like at least Amazon. At least okay. This is, they this, get theatrical this, releases. This would be an interesting. Like I don't know. We're not going to do any block on this conversation. But like they do theatrical releases. Like you know, Lana Grin, Manchester by Sea wasn't like see it on Amazon Prime. It was like no, go fucking see it in the theaters, and then you can wait a couple months and see it on Amazon Prime. And I don't. I mean, I like the convenience of the... Um, right, I don't have a problem with that. I like to say Manchester by the Sea was something I was glad I saw in theaters. But I think, like, even, like, would we have, like, our conversation last week with, with the technmanship, technical craftsmanship of something like Hold the Dark, would we appreciate it a little more if we had to see it in theaters first? Who knows? Like, last thing is, like, films on the small screen, do we lose something from it? It's a conversation know. for another. You know what? That's a conversation for our Twitter. No, I'll I'll, I'll drop what? the question. And on this our is all Twitter. those conversations we're going to keep having because we're going to keep watching all these movies. Is there going to be a? Are we going to like see Roma and say, "I wish we had gone to New York City to see that in theaters"? Yeah, if especially when they're saying like anything. a lot of these movies are only releasing on a hundred screens worldwide, just to get Oscar, you know, consideration and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like I we can't. I mean, it's only a train ride for us, really. If we really want to see Roma, it, it's I mean, it's a thirty-two dollar ticket, but the train ticket. But it's close by. For somebody living in middle America who still has the same appreciation for film, what the fuck are they going to do? Well, it's the same thing like, you know, Alfonso Cuaron, like, it was, I saw Gravity on my television. You know, it, I'm assuming it didn't do the same thing that it did it on the It lacked the gravity? Yeah, it lacked the gravity. Yeah, there you go. Um, I was indifferent to Gravity. You know, would I, am I going to be indifferent to Roma because I'm going to more than likely watch it on my TV. Yeah, if it's the offerings there, I'm going to watch it on the tele. I'm going to watch it on my television. You know, because it's, it's I've paid for Netflix. But um, needless to say, there's a lot of movies coming out. Yeah. So you should go see a movie, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you about next.